Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of the McStay family murders? In November 2009, a man named Joseph McStay, his wife Summer, and their two young sons, Gianni and Joseph Jr., moved into a house in Fallbrook, California. The couple had lived in a small apartment in San Clemente. Joseph owned a business called Earth Inspired Products, which designed, shipped, and installed decorative water fountains all around the world. The business was somewhat successful. Summer worked as a real estate agent. The couple bought the house in Fallbrick in foreclosure for about $320,000. It needed some work. The couple was performing the necessary repairs and upgrades themselves. Their intent was to sell the house after it was renovated and move back to the coast. The couple had some financial problems, or they were just bad about paying their bills. They were almost evicted from their apartment in San Clemente because they were always behind on the rent. In addition to buying a $320,000 house, the couple had $100,000 in bank accounts. It seemed odd that they had that much money, but still didn't pay the rent on time. Like perhaps this wasn't a matter of not having the money, it was a matter of them being irresponsible. Now moving to February 2010. At this time, Joseph was 40, his wife 43, Gianni 4, and Joseph Jr. 3 years old. On February 4, Joseph left his house at about noon. He was driving the family's 1996 Isuzu Trooper. He had a business lunch with a man named Charles Merritt, who went by the name Chase. Chase was a metal worker and welder. He would build some of the fountains designed by Joseph, so they were business associates. At 5.47 p.m., Joseph and Summer exchanged text messages. At 7.47 p.m., a neighbor's video camera captured the bottom 18 inches of what appeared to be the Isuzu Trooper. The SUV was backing out of the mixed-day driveway. Not even an hour later, at 8.28 p.m., Joseph's phone was used to call Chase Merritt. It pinged a tower in Fallbrook. The call went to voicemail. Chase told the police that he did not answer the call because he was watching a movie. No members of the McStay family were ever heard from again. Friends and family members became concerned after noticing they were unable to reach the family. On February 10, 2010, the police visited the McStay family house at the request of a friend of the family. They didn't see anything out of the ordinary, so they left. On February 13, Joseph's brother Michael and Chase Merritt stopped by the McStay family house. The men noticed that Joseph's pickup truck was there, but not the Azusa Trooper. When they entered the backyard, 
they found the family's two dogs were there. No one was looking after them. The men climbed through the open window in the back of the house. The house looked as though the family left in an instant. They saw rotting bananas, eggs on the counter, two bowls of popcorn were on the couch, dirty paintbrushes were present, and Summer's prescription glasses were there. For some reason, the men did not notify the police right away, although eventually they did notify them. The police searched the house six days later. They made a few discoveries. There was no forced entry, nothing was taken, there was no sign of a struggle, and no blood was found. It was at this time they uncovered the video surveillance capturing the Isuzu trooper backing out of the driveway and the call from Joseph's phone to Chase Merritt's phone. On February 8, which was prior to the police searching the house, the Isuzu trooper was towed from a San Diego strip mall near the Mexican border at about 11 p.m. The police believed the vehicle was abandoned there between 5.30 and 7 p.m. that same evening. Therefore, the Isuzu trooper was unaccounted for from February 4 to February 8. The police found video of a family of four crossing the border into Mexico on February 8 at around 7 p.m. They were walking. The family resembled the McStay family in a few ways. There was one adult male, one adult female, and two children about the same height as Gianni and Joseph Jr. The video was low quality and it was impossible to identify the people. Some family members who looked at it thought there was about a 50-50 chance it was the McStay family. The police believed there was a 75% chance that the family in the video was the McStay family. As the investigation continued, more evidence was discovered which supported the idea the family had simply left to Mexico. A few examples. Months before the disappearance, Summer had used the family computer to search for Spanish language software. Eight days before the disappearance, Summer searched the question, what documents do children need for traveling to Mexico? Joseph was no stranger to international travel and business dealings. He had purchased property in Belize with the intent of retiring there someday. And there were several unconfirmed sightings of the family in Mexico and in other countries. Some evidence pointed against the theory that the McStay family became the McWent family, so to speak. Joseph's asthma medication was in the Azuzu Trooper. Summer's passport had expired which meant she could travel to Mexico, but could not re-enter the United States. Joseph deliberately avoided traveling to Mexico because he was afraid of drug wars. Joseph and Summer left $100,000 in the bank and never accessed any of their accounts after disappearing. In April 2013, the police announced that the family probably went to Mexico. They thought the family must have met with foul play sometime after arriving in Mexico, perhaps at the hands of organized crime figures who were in the illegal drug business. On November 11, 2013, a motorcycle rider was in the Mojave Desert near Victorville, California, when he found human bones. He notified the police. They found two graves, each containing the remains of two people. Later, the four individuals were identified as the McStay family. Along with the bones, there was a rusty three-pound sledgehammer in one of the graves. All four victims died from blunt force trauma to the head. The police believed that the sledgehammer was the murder weapon. Joseph had a cord wrapped around his neck, but that did not cause his death. The police focused their attention on Chase Merritt for several reasons. He was the last known person to have contact with Joseph. Chase had racked up an impressive quantity of charges from 1977 to 2001, including two charges for burglary, 
three for receiving stolen property, one for petty theft, one for criminal trespassing, and one for grand theft. He had been convicted of felonies. He frequently borrowed money from Joseph and owed him over $42,000. In the days following the disappearance, Chase wrote $21,000 worth of checks from Joseph's business account. He made his way to several casinos and lost thousands of dollars gambling. Chase tried to cover up the fact that he wrote those checks. In 2013, Chase told the police that he spent over an hour with Joseph on February 4, 2010. In 2014, Chase talked about writing a book. He said that Summer was an angry person and Joseph had been suffering from a mysterious illness for quite some time. Chase was implying that Summer murdered Joseph. Interestingly, family members thought that Summer was possessive and confirmed that Joseph had some type of strange, unexplained medical problem. However, they disagreed with the implication that Summer killed him. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. It seems fairly obvious that Summer wasn't the killer, even if she decided to kill her family, how did she bring an end to her own life? It's quite unusual to hear of self-inflicted sledgehammer wounds, at least ones that are lethal. As the investigation continued, the police came to believe that Chase murdered the McStay family. They were trying to figure out how he did it. They did not search the McStay family home again because it had been sold. A new family was living there and they had renovated the house. The police did, however, have photographs of the house from February 2010. In those photographs, they noticed that one of the rooms was freshly painted. They came to believe that Chase must have killed the entire family in that room. Investigators re-examined the Azuzu Trooper. They found DNA matching Chase Merritt on the steering wheel and on the gear selector. Chase was arrested on November 5, 2014. On June 10, 2019, he was found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. About six months later, he was sentenced to death. Now moving to my analysis. Was Chase Merritt actually guilty of these murders? Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that he was guilty, starting with the inculpatory evidence. Chase borrowed a substantial amount of money from Joseph. He stole money from the business and went gambling right after the family disappeared. He had an extensive criminal history. He was the last person to see Joseph alive. When talking about Joseph, Chase told a reporter, 
I am definitely the last person he saw. When talking with investigators prior to the discovery of the remains, he referred to the family in the past tense. His DNA was found inside the Azuzu Trooper. Data from Chase's cell phone indicated that he was near the graves two days after the disappearance. His cell phone went dark for hours at a time over the course of several days after the disappearance. Video surveillance in the neighborhood of the McStay family captured dark, low-quality images of a pickup truck consistent with the one driven by Chase Merritt. Moving to the exculpatory evidence, there is no video of the murders, there are no witnesses, no physical evidence tied Chase to the murders, no blood was found even though all four victims had skull fractures, Summer and Joseph had associated with other men who may have been dangerous, Summer has some difficulties with previous romantic interests, and Joseph conducted shady business dealings in the past. When considering all the evidence, do I think that Chase Merritt was guilty? I think he was guilty in reality and beyond a reasonable doubt. The most compelling evidence is the cell phone data that places him near the graves and the fact that he stole money from Joseph right after the disappearance. What do I think happened in this case? This is just a theory, my opinion. The first part of my theory is about the relationship that Joseph and Summer had. It appeared to be a toxic relationship. Joseph was outgoing, friendly, generous, gullible, and irresponsible. Summer was aggressive, ill-tempered, insecure, dishonest, and also irresponsible. She had used at least six aliases in her past and claimed to be 10 years younger than her actual age. Summer threatened to leave Joseph because she did not want him to take care of his 14-year-old son from another relationship. Email communication between the couple suggests that Summer was the aggressor and Joseph was passive in response to her threats. Until the remains of the family were found, some people believed that Summer had murdered Joseph. With the nature of the mixed day marriage in mind, I will now move to the nature of Chase Merritt. Prior to the murders, Chase committed a number of nonviolent crimes. As time went on, it appears as though he developed some type of gambling problem. He borrowed a lot of money from Joseph, who was generous to a fault. Summer probably did not like Chase. Again, she was very possessive of Joseph. She was jealous. She did not want Joseph spending time with anybody else or spending money on anyone else. As somebody who struggled to tell the truth, Summer recognized Chase as a fellow dishonest person. She became increasingly assertive with Joseph, telling him that he needed to make Chase pay back what he owed. This may have been why Joseph traveled to meet with Chase on February 4. Chase realized that Summer wasn't going to let this go. He started thinking about committing murder to avoid paying back what he owed and to get more money to feed his gambling problem. He knew that only killing Joseph or only killing Summer would not solve his problem. He believed the only way to achieve his goal was to murder both of them. If he was going to kill both of them, he didn't want to leave their sons as witnesses, so he decided to wipe out the entire family. He makes his way to their house, perhaps under the guise of trying to work things out in a friendly manner. He picks up the sledgehammer. Maybe it was there because the couple was doing renovations. He then proceeds to torture and murder all the members of the family. The torture part was probably to make sure he obtained information necessary to get the money. It's not clear how he killed the family without leaving blood spatter or other physical evidence. Perhaps the police are correct and he painted a room. Another possibility is that he kidnapped the family and killed them somewhere else. Chase places the bodies into shallow graves, steals the money, 
and then goes on his gambling trip. Amazingly, Chase almost gets away with the crime. The toxic nature of the McStay marriage, Summer's interest in passports, and the staging of the Azuzu trooper led the police to believe the family simply left the country for Mexico. If the bodies had not been discovered, Chase would have never been arrested. He managed to be incredibly efficient in some areas of his crime, yet in other areas he was haphazard. Now moving to my final thoughts. This case was all about expectations that were established in relationships. Joseph started loaning money to Chase, who in turn started to expect that this would always happen. He was walking all over Joseph. At the same time, Summer expected to control Joseph. She was walking all over him too. Joseph was trapped in the middle, unable to find peace with these two relationships. Ultimately, Chase and Summer came together. Both of them were accustomed to dominating their victims. Neither one wanted to back down. In this particular case, Chase was the one willing to be more destructive. He was determined to win at any cost. I think the lesson in this case is that people can become accustomed to being mistreated in relationships, but that doesn't make the relationship any less hazardous. Joseph had two people in his life who wanted what he had to offer. Chase wanted his money, and Summer wanted his obedience. Joseph tried to manage these relationships with generosity and passivity. He failed to realize how far Chase would go to keep the winnings collected from a bad relationship. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.